Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Welcome back to part two of The Saints. This episode is called The End of an Era. One Sunday after a day spent in Salisbury on R&R, we were instructed to gather on the parade ground for roll call. It had been a blazing hot autumn day and most, if not all, of three commando, new recruits and hardened soldiers were dressed in boxer shorts, T-shirts and flip-flops, well, known as slip-slops in Rhodesia. Something was up. We could feel it. We now knew our instructors like we knew our own loved ones. We understood their moods and their movements, their twitches and their tics. What the hell's going on, mumbled one troopy under his breath. I don't know, whispered another, but it looks damn fishy. Have you noticed the lorries over there, said one chap. Across from the parade ground, a few Bedford RLs were sat idling. The battalion were told to stand at ease while we waited for our orders. The ramrod straight colour sarge marched past with his handlebar whiskers twitching nervously. It was somewhat difficult to brace up in slip-slops, so not surprisingly there was a collective muffled shuffle as we came to attention. All eyes rolled sideways to catch the commanding officer of the battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Passaportus, walk onto the parade ground. We adored our CO. He was young, tough, and extremely gifted. He was the kind of man needed to run a bunch of unruly soldiers, often likened to those from the French Foreign Legion. Right, take everything out of your pocket, soldiers, and I mean everything. Quickly, we emptied our pockets. Packets of Madison toasted Kingsgate, lighters, chewing gum, keys, Swiss army knives, the odd rubber, wallets and loose change, and the watchers, gentlemen, by now a small pile of contraband, had been piled up on a ground sheet on the concrete. Fuckers, mumbled the chap beside me. It's hardly illegal stuff, is it? We were confused by the sudden confiscation of our property. Relieved of all our worldly goods and having had a thorough pat-down, 
we were then instructed to get into the waiting trucks. Without so much as a briefing, we departed, canvas sides of the lorry secured to prevent any of us seeing where we were going. Hey guys, check it out, shouted one soldier. He had his dick out and was pulling back his foreskin in a weird way. Jesus, bugger, what the fuck are you playing at? The man next to me said, moving away slightly. Voila, he said, revealing a small, very tightly folded $20 bill. Sorted, he said, buttoning up his fly and sitting back with a satisfied smirk. You fucker, how did you have time to do that? We didn't wait for an answer. Like all good armies that have been taught to sleep at any time, anywhere, we all soon drifted off. After an hour or more, the RL slowed down to about 10 miles per hour. We began hitting the odd bump on the road, which woke most of us up. By now it was dark outside. Right, lads, shouted the sergeant. I'm going to give you each a piece of paper. Then, when I call your names, you debus on the move. He began calling names in alphabetical order, in twos or occasionally threes. The vehicle drove a few miles before another two names were called. Slowly, the lorry emptied of soldiers as they slipped over the back and out onto the dirt road, disappearing into the gloom. I was near the end, all the V's and all the W's. Van Zale, Wood and Vessel, you guys are next. Not really guys I would normally mix with, one being a hard-nosed grease monkey and the other a slightly weedy admin man. My heart sank. Silently we debussed and stood on the lonely road as the dust settled around us. We looked at each other, slip-slops, t-shirts, shorts, no wallets, no cigarettes, no rifle, no nothing. Then we read the paper. It was brief, it was simple and very clear. This is an exercise to test both your endurance and your aptitude. You are to make your way to Bite Bridge. You will receive further instructions from Mr. J. L. Anderson, where you will proceed to Camp O2, Lake Kyle. You will rendezvous at 1600 hours in three days from now. Anyone caught trying to sneak back into the barracks or caught using any form of military transport will be sent to the box. It was signed, Lieutenant Colonel Passaportus. Jeez, man, groaned Van Zale. Rendezvous in three days, are they kidding? Bite Bridge was on the border of Rhodesia and South Africa. That would mean a journey from the Midlands to Bulawayo, then down to the South African border, hundreds of miles, then from Bite Bridge, several hundred miles more to Lake Kyle in the Lowfeld. Some random chap called Anderson. It was certainly a part of the world quite unknown to me, being what I like to think as a northerner. Any ideas, lads, I said. Well, let's at least get to the main road. We can hike from there, said Vessel. Unbeknown to us, each group had been given a different task, a different route, but all were to finally meet at the lake. Some were sent north to Kariba, others to the eastern highlands, and a few to Victoria Falls. And off we set. Three rather dusty, forlorn-looking boys, penniless, 
without cigarettes or food. After a 10 mile walk, we finally made the main road to Bulawayo, where we were picked up by a clapped out, crowded car full of Africans. Immediately, they took a shine to these odd white men they'd found on the road to nowhere. It was not lost on us that the fast, whizzing vehicles that had shot past without stopping had all been driven by whites. Either with lives too busy to stop, or pick up a hiker, or else too wary of the many liberal Scandinavian social and health workers who seemed to have piled into the country. I found myself squeezed tightly between a middle-aged woman with a loud, deep laugh and a shy teenage boy with an endearing smile. On my lap, the woman had deposited a bag of knitting that she happily clacked away at, quite unfazed, by the extra passengers. Occasionally, the car axle hit the tarmac with a worrying crunch, sending a shower of sparks behind us into the darkness. The driver was smoking a huge roll-up made of newspaper and tobacco scrap that he passed around together with some hot roasted sweet potatoes followed by a bottle filled with Chibuku local beer. A rickety tape deck bound to the dashboard of masking tape was pumping out some upbeat marimba music. Soon we were all relaxed, if not somewhat smelly, with chibuku and sweat, but more importantly, headed for Bulawayo. It soon became apparent that I had landed with my bum in the butter. Both Van Zale and Vessel spoke fluent in the belly. Both came from this part of the world. Both had a certain amount of street credibility, which I suspect I was lacking. My uncle lives in Bulawayo, Vessel informed us. Let's go there and we can stay the night. It was a grand plan of action. Indeed, it was our only plan of action. By the time we farted our way up to Vessel's uncle's gate, it was late. I had hoped to find myself in a nice middle-class white neighbourhood with sprinklers and alarm systems. Instead, I was surprised to see that the streetlights tended to be few and far between. The verges were hard dirt rather than the green mode variety I was more used to. The area looked downbeat, unkempt, poor, and inhabited by a, a rougher variety of person than I was used to. This is the place here, said Vessel, indicating a square, whitewashed home. Red mud from the rainy season had splattered the walls like a crime scene. We thanked our travelling companions who, eager to get to their own home, sped off in a cloud of smoke and laughter. Creaking open an old, rusted chain-link fence, we entered the yard. 
The bungalow beyond was in total darkness, half hidden by a large, gnarled frangipani. There was no garden to speak of, just a couple of dilapidated cars, one without wheels, balanced on bricks. The porch was in deep shadow beneath the thin sliver of a moon. Suddenly, to our horror, out of the darkness came a beowulf-like creature that terrified the living daylights out of us. It was massive and hairy and was sprinting across the yard at a terrific speed. The long shadow cast by the moon threw a nightmarish shape across the dead lawn. And it was coming straight at us. To our horror, we realised it was an enormous male baboon. It let out a series of blood-curdling barks, baring its hideous fangs, its eyes white and terrifying as it bore down on us. A fucking baboon run, we shouted, scrambling over each other to get away from the lethal fangs. At the last second, the baboon lurched and then emitted a death-rattling choke as it was yanked back, falling onto its hind legs like the slain Grendel. Then it was at us again, lunging against the chain, clamped against its neck, again and again. In the silence of the night, the noise was enough to make the bowels loosen. All three of us were on our backsides in the dirt, dumbstruck, what the fucking hell is that, shouted Van Zale. Vessel, you bastard, who has a baboon chained to their veranda? It was a shock, but soon we began to laugh. <laughs> Jesus, who, who are your cousins anyway? Don't they believe in mastiffs or Alsatians or axe-wheeling murderers like normal fucking people? A light came on inside the house. And soon the silhouette of a man appeared carrying a shotgun. Who's out there? I'll bloody will shoot you if you make one move. Ah, uh, Opa, it's me, Terry. It's me, Terry. Can you get rid of the bloody door, bitch, so we can come in? There was a snort from inside and a hard pull of the chain, followed by a good shout that sent the animal scurrying back to his half-sawn-off tractor-tire den. Tiptoeing past, I edged my way inside the sitting room and to relative safety. Now, I don't like to look a gift horse in the mouth, but the place was a tip. Literally, a huge pile of unwashed clothes took pride of place in the middle of the sitting room floor. I mean huge, at least up to my shoulders in height. Perhaps we had arrived on laundry day. No one seemed to notice it. They simply made their way around it as if it was not there. It was an unusual experience for me coming from a relatively pampered background. I mean, I'd heard of Afrikaans folk living very close to the breadline, but I'd never really seen it in person. And yet, they simply could not have been friendlier. Occasionally a grunt and a chink of a chain from outside reminded me that being indoors was far more preferable to being made lunch by a male baboon. Sheesh, you guys must be thirsty, hey, said the woman. 
emerging from the bedroom, curlers in her hair and a fag hanging from her mouth. Ya, Tante Anna, said Vessel, if you can find us some scoff, that would be mushy. This eccentric man and his wife, who chose to keep a baboon as a guard dog, who chose not to care about personal hygiene or laundry, or the niceties of life such as, well, decent furniture, couldn't have been kinder, feeding us at that late hour and gesturing for us to find a space to doss down for the night. I was grateful for the roof over my head and the fact that my face hadn't been torn off by a maddened ape. Early next morning, we departed for the border and Bite Bridge, where we were to find the elusive Mr. Anderson. We clearly didn't have the heart to ask Vessel's relatives for money, but they were kind enough to push a greasy brown bag full of delicious-smelling biltong our way and a couple of packs of much-needed tobacco. Making it to Bite Bridge with plenty of daylight to spare, we set off in search of Mr. Anderson. Our first port of call, the railway station, where we met a charming elderly station master. After we explained our situation, he shook his head with a twinkle in his eyes. He pointed the way to the local Bite Bridge Hotel. Mr. Anderson owns the hotel. Good luck, boys, he said, and waved us away. Just as we were turning to go, he motioned us back, taking in our slip-slops and dirty t-shirts and crew cuts. So are you boys undercover then? We looked at each other. I suppose we were, really. We nodded in unison. Bloody good show, he said. You lads all deserve a damn medal. We smiled. So you need to get to Lake Kyle, huh? Come back here tomorrow at twelve. I might be able to help. He was rubbing the side of his nose like a James Bond villain. We shook hands and departed for the old colonial hotel up the top of the hill. True to the station master's word, Mr. Anderson and his wife were not only the managers of the hotel, but had been expecting us. They greeted us like long-lost children, first pulling us to their bosoms and then showing us up to our room where they insisted rather politely that we have a bath, then come downstairs to eat and have a chat. This was all becoming rather easy and extremely enjoyable. That evening, Mr. Anderson gave us a letter to give to our CO and the following morning sent us clean, nourished and happy to the train station. A long, hissing cargo train was waiting at the platform and we had a berth on it. Well, not quite a berth. The station master had spoken to the driver about these three undercover operators and asked if he could help out. And so that is how I found myself travelling on the very front of a train on what they call the cow catcher for hundreds of miles all the way down to the sugarcane plantation town of Triangle. It was spectacular and by far the best way to travel by train, with the warm, low-felt wind in our hair and the thunder and power of a massive locomotive behind us. (laughs) 
triangle we knew was not quite on our route, although it was in the right direction to a degree. But as luck would have it, Van Zale's family came from Triangle, having assured us that the best he could do in the way of household pets and exotic guard dogs were a long-haired Siamese and a pair of parakeets, we decided it was an opportunity we couldn't miss. How we were to get from there to Lake Kyle was quite something else, but we still had 48 hours to kill. I was beginning to warm to my travelling companions. Thinking about it, I realised that I'd done precious little to aid and abet our band of brothers along this journey. I was determined that this would come to an end. Now I would do my bit. Fortunately, I did just that. That evening, the Triangle Club had an outdoor movie They were showing the return of the Pink Panther. It was the highlight of the triangle social scene and three strapping soldiers undercover were certainly not going to miss out. While Van Zale and Vessel were on a bale of hay necking some girls, I was out trying to redeem my utterly poor reputation for having contributed bugger all to the trip. At the bar, I saw my quarry and made my move. I had noticed a group of Air Force officers at the club, and after some inquiring discovered that there was an airbase nearby. Using all the charm in the world, I hinted to one of the pilots that, A, my cousin Mick Greer was the Air Commodore of the Rhodesian Air Force. True, we were undercover and urgently needed to get to Port Victoria near Lake Kyle. Half true, I felt that I had nothing to lose. Meet me at the base tomorrow morning, he instructed. And that, so I thought, was that. The following morning, the three of us found ourselves standing to attention in front of a desk manned by a Rhodesian Air Force officer. All I could see was lots of gold braid. I hear you're on some clandestine operation, soldier. What's this all about? Tell me now. I must say I am surprised. I haven't been told of any operations down here in Repulse. Who are you with, anyway? He frowned, then looking at me said, It's all frightfully odd, I must say. You do realise I'm going to have to check with your battalion commander. Christ, I thought. It just seemed so easy last night over a beer. Yes, sir, I said confidently. We are with the RLI, sir. Three commando. Totally undercover, you see, sir. Jolly good show, jolly good show. Well, let me get my adjutant to just patch me through to the RLI. Yes, sir, we said. My heart sank. It was the box for us, for sure. We were going down. We had stayed with relatives, which we weren't allowed to do. We had lied to an officer, which we weren't allowed to do. And now we were attempting to hijack a plane to take us a few hundred miles on the pretense that we were on clandestine operations. Silently, we stood while the officer dialed the operator and got patched through to the RLI. 
please, please don't answer. I eyed my mate. Vessel looked back at me. If only looks could kill. The phone kept ringing. Please be busy or something. Whatever happens, please do not get hold of any three commando staff. We stood frozen, the whole while the officer looking back at us and waiting for us to crumble. We could hear the ringing again and again. Then the click and faint answer. He hummed, mm-hmm, uh-huh, and nodded, uh-huh, yes, mm-hmm, yes, I see, I see. Well, thank you, you've been most helpful. Then looking up at us one more time, he called in his aide, Jones, get these men an aircraft now. And that was how I managed to get us flown in an RAF Douglas Dakota, just the three of us, to our rendezvous on Lake Kyle, and with hours to spare. By now the war was winding down. In many ways, these assignments were simply a way to kill time, a means of keeping the troops out of trouble. As Mugabe, Zanu and Nkomo's Zipra forces lay down their arms, the writing was on the wall. This assignment was soon followed by several anti-poaching operations and one extraordinary war game operation that involved the full might of the Rhodesian army and air force and hundreds and thousands of rounds of ammo, RPGs, missiles, grenades, and of course troops. It was a spectacular show of might from a dying army and I expect a way to get rid of unwanted ammunition. After all, why give it over to Mugabe? I do remember mounting a machine gun and aiming it at a large tree and firing rounds until it finally toppled. We hurled grenades into rivers just to see how many fish we could kill and once tied several claymore mines to a small boabab tree and blew it sky high. It was all very well, but it had to end. I was never to see the action that I'd been promised. I have no idea how I would have reacted under actual fire. I expect my training, which was up there with the best, would have ensured that I did everything as ordered. The RLI was officially disbanded on the 25th of July 1980 with a final parade before a small crowd which included the outgoing Prime Minister Ian Smith. The regimental colours were marched past for the last time. And three days later, the trooper statue, a bronze sculpture of a troopie leaning upon his weapon, was dismantled and spirited away to South Africa and from there to Hatfield House in the UK, seat of the Marquis of Salisbury, a fitting resting place for a symbol of such pride. The RLI statue of the trooper, to commemorate the battalion's fallen, was spirited out the country. On the 17th of October 1980, under the command of the last commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Aust, the colours were laid up before the owns of the Rhodesian Light Infantry marched off the parade ground and into history. Soon afterwards, the battalion became integrated with Mugabe's troops and became known as One Commando Battalion. It fascinated me to see how the soldiers, be they friend or foe, mixed quite happily. The men we were trying to kill last month were now eating with us in the same mess hall. It may have been because the RLI was made up of so many soldiers of fortune, men who cared little about the politics and more about the action, 
the wrangling and arguments of state were left to the suits and government. Resentment and anger would follow many years later. But for now, though, we all just had a job to do. I remained in this hybrid army until Christmas, but the ghosts of the RLI were way too strong and civilian life beckoned. I departed, proud, strong, fit, and ready to face the world. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.